Welcome to Succession Stories, Insights for Next Generation Entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third-generation, 120-year-old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies, and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transition their company and others who experience disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next-generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive, or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. Subscribe to our newsletter for more resources to build value in your business. Visit small.big.com. That's small.big.com and sign up today. Originally from Scotland, Philip Swan is a serial entrepreneur and business builder. He sold his first business at the age of 10 and his second funded his college education. Philip's fascination with complex problem solving led him to become a cryptography expert. Scotland is world famous for its castles, so it was fitting that we talked about moats, business moats to be more specific. Philip is an expert at go-to-market and developing deep customer understanding at global companies like Microsoft and T-Mobile. And he's worked at high-tech growth startups. Listen in for insights on how customer experience can be a moat, a differentiator, and create value in your company. Philip, welcome to Succession Stories. It is awesome to speak with you today. As the audience will soon hear, you have a global background and you're not from the United States, but you live in Washington State. But it's exciting to talk to you about how you've become a global business builder. So welcome to Succession Stories. I'm really glad to speak with you today. Well, thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate the invitation. And yes, I live in beautiful Washington state and people from foreign countries here, I'm from Washington. They think immediately Washington, D.C. as opposed to the state. So that's always a fun education and geography of the United States to foreign people. <laughs> that's right. You are originally from where? Tell us about your background. Where did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up in Scotland and it's like New York. It's a beautiful place to be from. And I'm a proud Scots person and I've got so much gratitude for the education that I received in Scotland. At the time when I grew up, we were blessed with having the number two education system in the entire planet. You know, so I have uh, really, you know, been blessed with my upbringing and that's allowed me to travel the world and learn new cultures and learn how, and more specifically, learn how to be successful in doing business across the globe. And there are very few places that I've never been to for business. So I'm excited to add those to my list at some point in the near future. Did you live in other countries outside yes. of Scotland, the US? Yes. So when I graduated, I spent one year working for the British government in the UK, and then they transferred me to France for five years. And I was working there. And through that work is how I came to the US. So I spent five years in Paris. So I speak French. And it was a very 
enlightened experience. I've always been somebody who is goal-driven. So at 10 years old, I was traveling with my parents and standing underneath the Eiffel Tower. And I said, I'm going to live here. Same thing. My mother's family was originally from California. And I was able to go to California when I was 16. I'm like, I'm moving here. This is where I'm ultimately going to live, which was, and I achieved both of those goals. That's awesome. Walk me through your career. I know you've worked with some big, big name companies like sure. Microsoft and T-Mobile, and you've also worked with smaller entrepreneurial companies. So tell me a little sure. bit more about your career and also highlight some of your specialties, if you will. I've always been an entrepreneur. I started off at eight years old, never got a days of allowance in my life from my parents. Always taught me the value of earning your own money. And uh, so I started off with a paper route at eight years old. I then figured out by nine, if I got my friends to help me, I could expand my paper right out and make more money off of them, which I did. And I sold that business to somebody, believe it or not. And I opened up um, <laughs> at the age of 14, selling baby clothes at a flea market and paid my way through university. Uh, I ended up with 20 stalls in 14 different markets across Scotland. At 16, I was going to Hong Kong to buy baby clothes, which was really interesting, being dressed up being this kid and people not taking you seriously, turning up with wads of cash saying, you know, I'm buying this. Um, wow. It was a really interesting experience, which set me up for, you know, for what I wanted to do, which was technology. So I did have a dream when I was younger, because I come from a medical family of becoming a doctor. So if I don't live by regrets, but if I do have one regret, it was not becoming a doctor. But at the time... I was convinced not to do it because it was difficult to be a doctor in a foreign country at that time. So I focused on what I was good at, which was math. And I figured out that computer science would have been a good thing. So I ended up doing math and computer science with a focus on cryptography and parallel computing of science technology. I'm a geek at heart. And so I worked for 15 years working in cryptography. And that got me to travel the world. I went to China the first time in 1984, where there were, I went to Shanghai, which at the time had four traffic signals. Pudong, which is its own massive city now, was a marsh back then. It has been amazing to watch the transformation of China into the global power that it is today. And you can talk about the benefits and negatives of that. And we won't get into a political discussion on what my, th my thoughts are, but it's been a really interesting process that I've really learned how to do business, not just in China, but in other parts of the world, because culturally, it is so different how to adapt in. And I'm kind of a chameleon when it comes to that. I can adapt to what people are saying. And that's the key thing. It's that I find successful in my career and you asked about success, it's how to transform businesses. And when I came out of working for the government, I went to a company called Wind River Systems that we were in the process of taking public, and it was completely a military aerospace company, which is interesting based in Alameda, California, filled with, even back then, was highly progressive, people not liking the business we were in. I led the team that drove us out of Milero into various vertical markets globally, which included automotive and telecom and others. So my big successes there was helping, you know, take that company from a $4 stock to $133 in space of three years and turning a sub $10 million company into, you know, greater than $100 million in that time frame. In today's day and age, that level of scale happens much faster. But back in the early 90s, that was huge scale back then. 
Yeah, for for sure. So you have this knack and specialty in in tech, but this turnaround, this how do we get from where we are to right. where we want to be? I'll call it maybe just starting out if we're in conversation here, like sales turnaround. You know, where you've come into a company and really gotten the engine going on revenue generation. How do you do that? So this is a really interesting question, Laurie, because. Somebody once asked me what my superpower was, and I'm going, superpower? I'm not this superhero with this super cape on. But I really thought about it, and I realized what they were talking about. What is the one thing I am truly good at? And the one thing that I am truly good at is go-to-market. And go-to-market isn't just about selling. It's about packaging. It's about identifying channels. It's about identifying the customer journey and why people will activate with your products and services. So I have a pretty compelling capability of being able to zoom out to 30,000 feet and seeing all the paths. Now, I'm a big climber. So everything I talk about, you know, visually talks about mountains. So I'm able to go and look at the mountain. That was the mountain peak that we're trying to get to, i.e. what is the mission? And I think in terms of mission, and mission is what is the goal that we're going after? So what is the peak we're going after? And the first time you climb that peak, it's really inefficient, right? When you think back to when Sir Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest, you know, with Sherpa Tenzing, it took them three weeks hauling multiple hundred pounds of weight up there. People are doing that in under 10 hours today. That's the kind of efficiency. Your initial go-to-market is going to be inefficient because you've just got to learn how to climb the mountain. And then you can focus in on how do you make the rinse and repeat process much more efficient so you can go and scale more mountains that look the same. And so my unique ability, that fairly unique, is being able to zoom out and seeing all the different paths and all the different routes and then achieving that goal as efficiently as possible. And I focus less on efficiency in the beginning than, than success and proving that success. So that is the skill set I bring to every company that I do, is identifying the mountain, the mission, and then the vision about how we're going to get there so the team comes along with it. Because 50% of every brand is your organization itself. And if your organization isn't built into the mission, vision, and more importantly, the values, and subsequently the purpose, you have to have a purpose that people can latch onto and hang their hook on. And it's not about following, you know, the glorified leader come hell or high water. It's about I believe. And when you truly believe, it's almost cult-like, right? And startups in many ways are like mini cults that you believe in what you're going after. And when you have that belief of everybody in the organization from the lowest level to the highest level and the entire organization working in a transparent way, you have a higher level of success. It doesn't guarantee success, but you have a much higher level of success. And in the tech world, you see companies you're failing at rates of greater than 80% over five years. And the reason, part of the reason is they don't understand what the mountain is that you're climbing. And then they run out of cash because nobody's, you know, nobody's there to go and actually welcome you to that mountain. And I call that customer permission. And it's getting that permission from the customer to sell you something. So it's really, before you get to any product release, is really understanding the customer pain points. Now, I've failed more than once 
And it's important, those failures I've learned more from, and some of them have been blazing failures. And when I analyzed, I didn't truly understand the customer's pain points. And I've learned from that. So before I take my time now in the go-to-market, and, re- and this is the wisdom part of getting older and, and really understanding and taking your time to understand what pain points does the customer have and why will she give you permission to sell to her? And I you- think that's super important. Philip, and just want to kind of pause on that for a minute in case people are sort of processing what does a customer journey mean? It's something that in the class I teach at Carnegie Mellon, we we work with master students on a project idea, and they can go deep on tech, but what they really have to start with and where they start focusing is on customer discovery and understanding what is the market opportunity, what problem is to be solved and then have the tech fit that need. I think a lot of times, and maybe this is what you've seen in your experience, there's great tech out there and then they go try to find the fit with the customer. And so it's kind of this back and forth. And so tell me what you've seen with regards to that and then how that fits in with the customer. So there's a great analogy and it's a very recent one that I can point to. The best tech doesn't win, right? It really does not. And Part of that is the arrogance by which certain engineering-led organizations you know, live by. I know better than you, customer, therefore I'm going to tell you what to do. Well, guess what? Customers go, I'm sorry, but I'm not buying from you. I'm not giving you my hard-earned dollars because you're forcing me down a path that's not natural to me. You mentioned the key word there, discovery. And that's the area that I spend the most time on with my team is really discovering the customer. And in common terms, people talk about that being a persona. And personas are easy to do because they're just words. I make them more than just words. I make them the customer comes alive. So when anybody looks at any of my pitch decks these days, they go, wow, I understand who this customer is. I can identify with this customer, whether it's myself, my wife, my brother, my friend, my whomever. This is that person. I see that. They will get benefit from this because you understand this customer. And there's no shortcut to finding out about that customer. You have to interview. And it's not just about doing three interviews or 10 interviews. You need a minimum of 100 consistent interviews before you can have statistically relevant data. And that's, now, that's not to say you won't have a trend before then, but if you've got your questions right, and this is also a key point to make, is getting your questions right that are unbiased, is you will start to see trends after 10 interviews. Then you can start building up, you know, more detail and more color around that as you get the number of interviews out. And these interviews are not a waste of time because guess what? Several of those people will be your initial customers. And so you will get them to use the product and you will get them to give you feedback on the product. And it's an iterative process. So this, you spend your time here at the beginning in discovery, you will start the formation with a customer journey. Customer journeys are data driven and in the beginning, you don't have the data. So you, you can only hypothesize about your customer journey. So you start with building the detail into discovery. 
and then you start get, you know you start going into the areas of how do how you how do you get to the customers learning mode right they will actually are engaged about getting the learning and it's all about the gives and the gets and a mistake that many b2b marketers make is when you go to the website and i'm sure you've seen this yourself it starts asking you this you know this whole list of questions on on before you can get a, a white paper you know what's your name what's your phone number what's your website what's your work email that's a, that's one that ticks me off more than anything i don't want your crap coming to my work email i want i have an email just specifically for all this other crap so i won't give you my work email you're creating a barrier to entry and i'm not the only person like that remove all barriers to entry to learn about your customer you will get, if you're delivering value, you will get more data on the customer. I cannot advise your listeners more. Make it easy for customers to talk to you. Name, don't force a phone number because people don't want to be connected. Get a valid email address. That's it. It could be, um, you know, you can just be there, um, like me, a specific email address that I have all that junk going to. Um, and it's not necessarily junk. And if it's interesting, I will subscribe to more and I will give you more information. It's about drip feeding the gives and the gets. And, and I do use the term drip because you have to be customer. You can't force a customer. You will, you will create blocks, barriers to entry if you're forcing customers down a particular path. People talk about a funnel and I'm changing direction here slightly, but very deliberately. People traditionally have thought of this, a funnel as being this V-shaped uh, thing where you have this all the stuff coming into the top of the funnel and how do you drive revenue out of the bottom funnels don't work this way anymore they're circular and at the center of the circle in every company that I do is the customer and I build out from there right how do we nurture that customer how do we get them to engage with us how do we get them to acquire some people will acquire faster than others and it's about the customer giving you permission, not you forcing on the customer. When you, when the customer gives you permission, they will buy from you. They will build loyalty. So it means you'll have customer retention uh, because your product is doing what it says it's going to do for them. And, you, and your lifetime value of that customer goes up the more you listen to that customer so you can have more upsell and cross-sell opportunities to them. So you may not get the flood of number of customers, but your value per customer will be, will be much higher. And that's what investors are looking for. That's a good place to transition because I want to talk about your experience building value in companies for that, either for acquisition. I know you've acquired mm -hmm. some businesses too. And so you've sort of been on both sides of the deal in, in M&A transactions. What are some of the common misconceptions business owners might have about their company when they want to become an acquisition target? We're, <laughs> it's arrogance, quite honestly. It, you know, it's the biggest blocker because um, I have a really nasty expression that I use with a lot of entrepreneurs. And, I, um, and people are, and I want to be a little bit careful on how I position this. So if I sound a little hesitant, it's not what I, what I want to say and how I'm going to say it. I'm just being a little bit more, a little bit careful is entrepreneurs are, are can be very full of themselves, right? But I've got the best idea 
and you should be buying from me irrespective of that. Now, the entrepreneurs that are successful, aside from being resilient, are the ones who really understand the cost back to that customer. But again, it's, being re- it's starting to be realistic about the value of your company. And companies are bought, they're not sold. That's where you drive value. So when companies are bought, it's you've got to have instill fear and greed in the the potential acquirer, right, or or acquirers. And what I mean by that is value is driven by supply and demand. If you've got the best thing with the best customer acquisition, you can show that story. You know, there you can drive a much higher multiple off of your revenues than you can with somebody who is running out of cash and it's now a fire sale. That's the sell. I've got to sell the company to keep it going. When I start a company, I think about legacy. What is the legacy that I want to leave behind? Um, and every company that I have done, and I do mean every one from startup, still exists in one form or another. And um, because I build things to last, when things are built to last, acquirers recognize that. And that could be on unique technology, that can be in unique value propositions, that could be, you know, there are two reasons you can either be unique at or best at right? Um, or the cheapest, right? And I never play in the cheapest mode. That's not my mode. And when you drive value um, through uniqueness that nobody else can do it, you've built some kind of moat around your business as an M-O-A-T, just like in a castle. Um, there are three three kinds of moats that you can build. And I always build a one you know, moat. There's a cultural moat, i.e. nobody can touch your culture within the company, right? You are that firestorm you know, you've, you've seen it in com- you know, in many companies. You know, Shopify is a great example of this, um, and building that you know, building that culture. Um, but you don't have to have the best tech. Um, so when you look at DoorDash, everybody's familiar with DoorDash. They do not have the best tech. Grub have had the best tech out there, right? And whereas the difference between DoorDash and Uber Eats and all of these other delivery services, they have the customer focus. So they've built a relationship with their users, which has driven their value. They don't have the best tech out there, but they have the best customer experience. Right. And that's what it comes down to. And if you were to talk to my CTO, my current, the, the company that we're starting up right now, and everybody else, my CMO, everybody else that has joined me on this journey that we're embarking on, the only thing I care about is customer experience. It's the only thing. When we get customer experience, customers trust you because they know you've got their interests in mind. They know we're not being arrogant by trying to push a certain path, them down a particular path. We're letting them be in control and we're giving them you know, what they need to be. And that's what DoorDash does. And look at the valuation that they got. Airbnb, same thing. Think back to the beginning of COVID. They had to lay off a quarter of their staff. But then it turned out People could escape cities and spend three months in an Airbnb and their revenues went through the roof. Airbnb is here to stay. DoorDash is here to stay. That is legacy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great way to think about it. I think people who are serial entrepreneurs, you use the the real description of yourself as a mountain climber. I know you enjoy climbing mountains. And I sometimes call serial entrepreneurs who strive for that climb mountain climbers too, but it's more of an analogy. So you you absolutely fit the, you fit the persona right. uh, in that in that sense. But let's say for for people who are creating and they are the founder, they are generation one. 
know, I've talked yeah. to some people on this show who are generation three, four, I've talked to generation 10. And I think even, you know, especially talking to generation one, sometimes people call themselves a founder and they think of it that way and it's kind of a static. But if you do have this sense of value and you have a sense of legacy and what you're building, no matter how you transition it, you're going to transition in one way or another. That's life. Right. That's and right. whether you choose to sell, whether you choose to transition to family or maybe to a management team, there is a transition that's going to happen. So what are you going to do from now to then to really build value and maximize value? So I love what you've been talking about, Philip, because I think the focus on the customer, the customer-centric nature of a company and how you've created that as a leader with your culture, I sort of noticed that when I was looking at your background and, and when you and I had talked the first time. And I think there are leaders out there that do focus on, on the customer, but they're maybe leaning in on tech first. Correct. And that can be a challenge, this moat that you described. I think that's one of the things perhaps that Warren Buffett looks for, right? Is how, do you have a moat around your business? And what is differentiating you, what your business, what, and what are those things? If it's a perception or a reality, doesn't matter. As you said, when you go to be acquired, you're being bought, not sold. I think that's an awesome phrase. So one thing to add to what I was saying, I mentioned the word legacy before. The only way that I can build a legacy behind me is by having succession planning, i.e. I'm not indispensable. And the thing that many entrepreneurs mistake is that, well, I'm indispensable. This is my idea and I know best, right? And that's the point where you need to do my favorite term, a founderectomy, and which is remove the founder from the picture. Um, <laughs> found a wreck to me. Yes, this is what I <laughs> is how I call it. Uh, because then companies will grow. But so I'm a you know I'm a huge believer in that you know anybody on my executive team could do my job, right? And when I look at my job as CEO, is a very simple way that I look at it is that I'm a marshaller of clarity between the customer and my team. People call it the five whys, right? Why, 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 right? I am the pain in the neck to everybody because I keep going until we get to that clarity, we're not doing a darn thing. And if, if I don't have that clarity myself, then nobody has clarity, right? So it's, we're continually driving that clarity. We're six months into this startup right now. And it took us a solid five months to get to that clarity as to what we are doing and how we are going to go and do it. It takes time. Do not rush this process and always have a backup. You don't know when you're going to get sick. You don't know when you have to take that urgent family trip to go and see a loved one. You don't know any of that. So you need backups. It's not about you. And when you leave, who's going to fill that role? Always have a backup plan. And is plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, and always work it. And none of those plans will be right. But what they will do, especially if you train against them, and you have, back to our military terminology of rally points, what is your rally point? How do you bring everybody back in? Where, when you get lost, where do you come back to? have those and you will be um there's a reason why the military has has you know does training is a reason why military has this term called 
force multiplication, i.e. it's not the person on the front lines, it's the entire organization, especially logistics, that gets you your food and everything else that you need to survive in the field. It's the same thing. People hate that military analogy. I'm sorry, but it works. And it's worked successfully for me my entire career. Is really everybody understanding that they can go off in their own directions and do it, but when the crap hits the, fo- the, the fan, as it always does, Let's be realistic. Startups, you don't know what you don't know. What's your rallying point? You have to come back and then you have to regroup and then you can go out again. And that's that learn, test, learn, invest, test, learn, invest. I cannot stress this enough for people. There's no magic, huge leap forward, right? It's the baby steps forward and learning from your mistakes. I totally agree with that. And I'm a big fan of testing, learning, and investing and use that throughout my career too. I would just also want to add into that, you know, this is not just a methodology for startups. I think startups are more agile. They know what they don't know. And there's definitely a a mode of, hey, let's build this and figure it out. But I think also for well-established companies, especially this year, right, as we head into 2021, there are a lot of companies out there that are rebuilding. You know, they've built value, they've built their business, but this is a year that's caused them to rethink a lot of things. And there are companies out there maybe listening, thinking about what are they going to do differently or what are they doing differently and how do they make that stick? So perhaps we can talk about that, this in context of if you're a well-established business and you don't necessarily have the customer discovery process, I think you did a good job earlier of explaining what they might do or what they might think about. Well, how can we encourage companies who are experiencing a rebuild moment, what they might do to reinvigorate the customer discovery process, given all of the changes in the market? So that's a really good question. So um, I have lots of friends who are very senior execs at large corporate America. And a consistent theme that has come through in talking to you know all of these people is just that how they how they have adapt, had to adapt. So as an example, um, I won't say who she is, but she has the title chief something at Microsoft, um, which means she's extremely senior. And um, I ran into her at the dog park at four forty-five in the afternoon um, a couple of weeks ago, and I've gone like what the heck, how are you doing here, right? <laughs> well, I don't have the daily interruptions now. I'm able to get my job done in a regular hour that I can, I just decided at 4.30, I'm done. And I could go out and do that. Whereas normally I wouldn't be done to eight, nine o'clock at night because I've got all of these random distractions. Now, for an introvert, that's a great place to be, right? Because you're, um, you're not having to deal with all of the people. So how do the different personality types when you're on, on the different scales or, you know, where people are highly extrovert, how are you able to now adapt? And the companies that I've seen be really successful in, in the pivoting, and especially the large ones, is creating a social environment. We're using the internet as a tool, not tools like Zoom, not tools like you know, or Teams or anything else, but actually working using the internet as a tool itself to, to start to create those social inter, interactions with, um, with people. Uh, so they're doing things like, you know, uh, virtual wine tastings where they've got a professional wine taster coming, they, they send the wine out to homes. So they're able to figure out ways to actually drive 
the social interaction with people, uh, creating games, creating more. Um, my CMO, as an example, works uh, very. She's an advisor to a company out of Canada, and you know they're doing like um, virtual charades and you know virtual karaoke and all kinds of things to keep you know teams together and having a lot of fun doing it. So it's not impossible to pivot. The smart ones who are pivoting are still creating that that cultural moat, as I call it, and building that culture with you know within those companies and doing that. The companies that don't do that are going to be left behind and are going to be stagnant. And so, you know, still understanding the customer is important, but you've got to pivot to keep your people happy. If your people are not happy, if your and you cannot make people happy. Everybody is is responsible for their own happiness, but I can sure as heck can make an environment where they will not gain that happiness. So it's about how do I build an environment, and it starts with us leaders, irrespective of whether I'm leading a team of four or a team of ten thousand, is creating that environment where they're happy, they're comfortable, they feel safe, secure, listened to, and especially as we're working with Gen Zers and Millennials different you know buggers as i call myself you know we're adapting right we're the ones that are adapting it's not other people because this is the new generation these are the new generation of business leaders and if you're going to build a legacy you've got to make people feel safe irrespective of gender irrespective of race irrespective of belief systems you know you just have to be open and we just have to stop being so full of ourselves and um, you know, there's nobody more self-deprecating than myself. I don't take myself that seriously, right? And so it's, I'm always poking fun of myself. So anybody who pokes fun at me, I'm laughing with, right? You know, uh, it's uh, as long as it's done respectfully. And, and, and that's the key. Do everything with respect, everything with openness. People want transparency. And if you're working in silos today, that's a hard place to, um, to pivot from. Yeah, Does that make for, sense? yeah, for sure. Sometimes I ask people to send me quotes that they like, and I want to mention one of them because I think it relates. And this is from a friend of mine. Her name's Sunny Erdman. And this quote is, success is never owned, it's rented, and the rent is due every day. And the original author of that is Rory Vaden. So thanks, Sunny, for submitting that. I think it's a relevant quote. It goes along with what you're saying. You don't take yourself too seriously. You know, you're looking to create successes in your team and 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 what you're doing, and you're doing it every day. You know, it's not That's right. something you're just banking on in, in a year from now. So the one I use that I live by, and I got it from my old days, is the only easy day was yesterday, right? Every day, is, I, I look forward to that challenge of the new day, right? And it's the thing that I, I do is, is, is about eliminating noise. And so I can focus on what's important, what's important for me, what's important for my family, and what's important for my friends, and what's important for my business. I live by four, four pillars in my life, my friends and family, my hiking, my, uh, my ability to go out of there, and, and solving complex business problems. And so those are the four things that I live by. Family, friends, you know, hiking, outdoors, which brings me to my passion for dogs, and um, you know, solving complex business problems. My life is in balance when those four things are working. When I don't have one, my life is not in balance, and I recognize that. So being self-aware enough 
and not arrogant about what's important to you because it goes back to your own happiness. Only you are responsible for your happiness, not for your families, not for your spouse, not for your workers. Because when you're happy, people are comfortable around you. They're not sensing, people do sense that negativity and don't want to be around people who are just complaining all the time. Yeah, you what's know? the saying? Your, your vibe attracts your tribe? Something like that. Exactly <laughs> no, I believe that. I believe that for sure. You mentioned what you're working on now generically. Are you able to talk at all about it or are you or in so stealth we, mode? Uh, we're, we're totally in stealth mode right now. It is an exciting product. We were already talking to uh, venture capitalists. We will be launching our app in the February timeframe and it is focused on, on revenue operations. And what revenue operations is is the amalgamation of sales ops and marketing ops. You know, the one thing salespeople always talk about is like, you're not giving me enough leads and marketing saying, well, we're giving you a whole bunch of leads, right? And there's just this constant conflict. And there's the old expression is, I know 50% of my marketing works, so just which 50%. You don't have that luxury now. You actually have to be able to maximize the spend of every single dollar. You have the fiduciary duty of, of spending that. Now, salespeople, don't give a crap, excuse my French, about what it costs a company to acquire a customer, right? They only care about one thing, quarter retirement and my commission check, if they're a good salesperson. So how do I get more? They are spending so much of their time on administrative tasks, like in CRM and in ERP and dealing with sales ops, um, that is consuming their days and is actually causing significant issues around job satisfaction. Because I'm not able to do what they're do. They're hustlers. Good salespeople are hustlers. Make no mistake, they're not process driven. Everybody likes to talk about sales process and everything else. That's great for business operations up to the CEO. You want that stuff. You have to have it. And I'm not trying to eliminate that need because you have to have it. But your good salespeople are the hustlers. So how do you actually get the information that you want out of the salesperson's head without them having to give up significant friction to actually give you what you want. Because in CRM today, your dirty is minimal, your, your data is minimal at best and dirty at worst, which means you have no clear understanding of the customer. And you've spent millions on implementing CRM and ERP, now make it work. So we are working to augment to the data on, um, on your existing CRM or ERP system, not replacing. Again, you want to start changing habits, you're in the wrong business. You want to actually, the way to get customer permission is allow them to keep working the way they like to work, but augment what they're doing and, and creep your way into their business, into their lives by gradually changing habits and going like, holy crap, why wasn't I using this before, right? And that's, that's, that's the way we're, we're coming at this. We're coming at it from the outside in, from the salesperson, into the enterprise. That sounds really compelling. And as someone who has worked with salespeople, we used to say that they're coin operated. Correct. <laughs> they're coin operated. That's so right. you, you talked a little bit about your transitions in your career. And I got to ask you, like, why now? Why do a startup now at this point when you could just maybe even put your feet up and walk the dog in the park and go hiking? So that's a really interesting question. So that comes down to my own DNA and who I am. And uh, my oldest brother uh, is in Australia. He is um, 
uh, I come from a family of achievers, uh, which made for an interesting youth. I'll tell you, when you have a mother saying, your brother's doing this, and why aren't you doing that? But anyway, we don't need to get into that this story of money. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, my oldest brother is um, a very successful um, physician in Australia. He's the equivalent of Dr. Fauci in Australia. And so I get to hear all the COVID news for whatever it's worth. Um, and we're both avid hikers, so we typically once a year get together uh, and go hiking somewhere in the world. And last year we were hiking because my nephew, was, his son was getting married in D.C. We hiked the Appalachian Trail. And we, were, we actually said, it's just like, he's 10 years older than me. And so like, I can never retire. And it's not a financial thing. It's just who we are, right? If you recall what I was saying about one of my core pillars is solving complex business problems, I can't get away from that. Now, what that looks like in 10 years for me is probably very different from doing a startup, you know, at my age again. But I have the energy to do another startup. And um, I'm going to be keep doing that until I don't have the energy to do it anymore. Um, and it's, you know, if your soul isn't in this game, forget it. You shouldn't do it. And I do mean your soul. You know, in a startup, and your soul has to be in, in what you're doing. And I cannot emphasize this enough. If you have a minute of self-doubt on that, walk away. Just walk. Find something else to do. Because if you do not truly believe, nobody else will. And, uh, and, it, you, and this is one where you can't fake it until you make it. You truly have to believe. And if you do, you will be successful. As I say to every entrepreneur, because like yourself with Carnegie Mellon, I... Um, I, I, I teach entrepreneurialism at various colleges in this area. Um, and I keep saying to people, you know, to people is just like, you've got to wake up every morning with the energy. And if you don't have that energy, nobody else is going to feel it. Just, you know, just walk away. And that's when I have failed because I've had the pit bull spirit where I'm locked onto the bone and not letting go. There's a time to say, you know what, this isn't working. You need to let go. And where I have failed is where I haven't let go. And I've kept proceeding down a path that even though I've believed, it just hasn't worked. And there are times where, you know what, you're just wrong. Yeah. And admitting you're wrong is a hard thing for, for many people. Yeah, no, understood. Well, Philip, you have an amazing background as a global business builder. Your entrepreneurial journey is certainly not over. You've got an amazing path ahead of you still and a lot of good work to be done. And I really appreciate you being on the show today. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way to find you online? My LinkedIn profile is Philip Swan. You can find me there, connect with me there, and um, happy to share my personal email. Um, people are willing to want to email me. It's philip with two L's, dot swan, S-W-A-N, at gmail.com. And uh, so work through my personal email versus my work email. It would be great. Perfect, perfect. Thank you for sharing your experience, your insights, your time, and thanks for being on Succession Stories today. Thank you for having me. Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to learn more. I'd love to connect with you. Subscribe to Succession Stories. And if you enjoy the show, please share a rating and review. Thanks for listening.